755 is real with David O'Brien and Eric O'Flaherty. Welcome back to 755 is real, the Braves podcast of authority and occasional coarse language in which we delve into all things bravos as well as touching on any other hot topics in baseball or whatever else comes to mind with Eric and I. I'm David O'Brien, Braves writer for The Athletic, and my co-host as always is Eric O'Flaherty, former Braves reliever, part of the famed Oventbrill trio of him, Johnny Venters, and Craig Kimbrell, which in my mind was as good a trio of, of relievers as any team's had in the past quarter century or so while I've covered the sport. Eric, what's up out in Seattle, man? Nothing. Nothing at all. Just uh, you're giving me a nice break for my kids today. They've been a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> well, we got a special guest today, defensive analytics guru Mark Simon, who's a writer and researcher for Sports Information for Sports Info Solutions, the company that developed the defensive run save stat, or DRS as we know it. So he'll be coming up. But before we get to Mark, Eric, we need to talk about Freddie Freeman, who was scratched from the lineup today, Tuesday, in the fourth game of the spring. That would have been his third game played. He didn't go to uh, Dunedin on Monday. None of the veterans went over there to Dunedin for that game. But scratched because of inflammation in that right elbow, the surgically repaired right elbow that he had cleaned out after the season last year. And, of course, everybody in Braves Nation is freaking out. But Brian Snicker said after batting practice uh, an hour after the announcement was made that he was scratched. It was precautionary. He's been assured, the doctor said, it's not unusual for him to have some inflammation after ramping up his activities with so much throwing and hitting in the past week since reporting to camp, uh, and that he'll probably only miss a few days, and they got plenty of time to get ready. You know, I understand the freak out because, of, you know, it ruined the break season last year, not having Freddie at full strength down the stretch, but at the same time, I could see where it wouldn't be out of the, uh, you know, extraordinary to have some type of you're going to have something in there when you go from zero to 60 or not zero but he was you know just hitting a little bit and throwing some but all of a sudden he's going full bore throwing all the time hitting three times a day that you're going to have some inflammation or scar tissue or whatever even though it was just scoped because they remembered they removed two bone spurs and three fragments from the elbow so what's your uh zero to ten what's your uh what's your measure of freak out right now zero ten 10 being the worst. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, you <laughs> Zero, can't just, yeah, you can't just cut an elbow open and put some Neosporin on it and be ready for spring training. You know, it's, it's a complex joint. It's a, it's a high volume amount of work that, that, that elbow is doing. Um, I took it as a good sign because, you know, the last thing in the world he wants to deal with is this. It, it's, it's really tempting as an athlete to mask something like this and, and not want to deal with the media, not want to deal with the fans outrage, not want to deal with all the questions. And you just don't want to deal with it. I mean, that's the main thing. I'm sure the pain's not that bad, but, um, I took it as a good sign that maybe he learned his lesson to, yes. you know, actually be careful with his elbow. And mm-hmm. anytime you have a surgery like that, you can't expect it just to be just to go smoothly, you know, there's going to be some hiccups and stuff with, uh, with any type of surgery and, and coming into this really ramping up for the first time. I think it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's not very uncommon to have a little irritation and stuff. And I'm just taking it as a sign. Like he learned his lesson last year and doesn't want to really piss this thing off. Yeah, I, I agree. I think perfect scenario, obviously you don't have any soreness all spring and everything, but like you said, that's unlikely. And I think the positive to take out of this is finally Freddie might see the value in saying, 
you know, and not trying to just uh, bull his way through things when they're, you know, like last year when he played with it, when it got sore and kept playing. And I think it's uh, it's a good sign that he's willing to shut it down for a few days because, I mean, Freddie of all people, every spring, the last couple of weeks of spring training, he's just kind of bored and hits his, he's already peaking, you know, two, three weeks into spring training usually. He's hitting like he just, uh, like he's been hitting all year. Uh, you know, like he could, he's one of those guys that can roll out of bed and hit, and he doesn't need five weeks of hitting at spring training. He needs two or three. So this is a good time for this to happen uh, and him shut it down for a few days. I, I, so I see what you're saying, and I think it is probably a plus uh, more than it's a negative. Yeah, and I get I get the fear because you you see how valuable he was last year. Um, it, it was undeniable what a difference it made not having him at, at 100% for the, for the stretch run in the playoffs. But um, – it, like I said, it's it's not something that you could have had this surgery and expected uh, no hiccups at all. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, he took chunks of bone out of his joint. Uh, mm-hmm. It's things changed in there, and and once he starts, I don't know how much throwing he was doing in the off season, but now you're doing you're doing your fielding drills, you're throwing to bases. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a lot of torque on that elbow. Uh, I don't. It doesn't worry me at all at this point because there's so much time. I mean, it's not obviously not a good sign when something like this happens, but I don't think it's a like a huge. Uh, I don't have a lot of fear of it either at this point because it's almost expected that you're going to have some kind of inflammation or something pop up at some point during spring training after a surgery. Yeah, I don't think he was doing much throwing at all because, you know, he was hitting in the cage and all that out in California before he came down here. But I don't think he was going out and throwing and long tossing and everything. I think it was mainly just me. He didn't even mention throwing. I'm sure he did some, but nothing like he's been doing since since he's been down here. So, um. But, yeah, we saw last year he didn't hit a home run after September 1, and this was when he was on a pace for like 45 for the year on an MVP caliber run. And he didn't homer after September 1 until he hit one in the playoffs, ran ran into one in the game one of the division series. So we saw the difference it makes not having a, a full Freddie Freeman or even an 85% Freddie Freeman in that, in that lineup. It's a different team, and it's not a World Series contender to me without Freddie Freeman. Uh, at something close to full strength. So I think it's better to shut it down now, get him right, than it is to try to plow through this because few teams in baseball, you know, maybe the Brewers without Yelich, but few teams in baseball I think would miss a key guy like the Braves would miss Freddie or Acuna. Yeah, you miss him at first base a lot too. I mean, his, his yeah. defense is really good. He's, there's no doubt what his value is, but just, just being this early is – it's kind of for me. It's just a whatever. We'll we'll see how it plays out. There's yeah. no re- no reason to panic. Yeah, it's uh, it'd be one thing if this happened during the stretch drive or even during the season at all, and you had to miss some games. But for it to happen now, it's a blip. If it if he comes back, you know, and uh, even if it takes, you know, Snip didn't even want to put a timetable. Didn't want to say two or three no. days. He said it. We'll put him in when he's ready. Even if he misses a week, this will be absolutely a blip. You know, when they Nobody get to opening day. Last year, people forget it. This time last year, Donaldson was still trying to uh, learn how to run a different way. People <laughs> yeah. forgot that. This was when they didn't play him early in the season because they had the trainers working with him on a different way to run so he didn't put so much stress on his ankles and his heels could have all those calf issues. And we were all going, holy crap, he's learning how to run? He yeah. wasn't even playing in games. And then once the season starts, and he's still struggling when the season started, but by middle of May, people didn't even remember that Donaldson <laughs> spent the first couple of weeks of spring training to learn how to run. So, yeah, Freddie Freeman will be the least of their concerns if he's back, you know, in a week or two and uh, uh, at 100%. So we'll see. But for right now, I'm taking their word for it. The doc told 
Snit, that this is not at all uncommon for him to have some inflammation in there after the surgery that he had. Yeah. Yeah, you just you just play it by ear. Yeah. They got uh, Yonder Alonso started at first base today in Freddie's place. Uh, and that's fine for a guy at AAA and the guy stick in there for a few games at a time. But Yonder Alonso ain't no Freddie Freeman. They do have options at first. You know, they could play Austin Riley over there if they needed to. You know, if, if Freddie was going to miss any significant time, they got Tyler Flowers can play there for a game or two. Camargo, Adam Duvall. That's, a, that's a, a you know, another likely option if they were needed to need a guy for a significant stretch uh, during the season. But again, nothing that nobody they put at first base in place of Freddie Freeman is a good option. Let's make that clear. This is a far lesser team without Freddie Freeman in the lineup for any significant stretch. Yeah, that might be a good good option, but you're not replacing Freddie Freeman. You know, there's not many guys not in the even, entire league that could do that. Not even close. Um, so, uh, hey, listen, you can read all of our award-winning sports contents on The Athletic and save 40% off your first year subscription by visiting theathletic.com forward slash 755 is real. Again, that's theathletic.com forward slash 755 is real. You can read everything I've written and we'll write about the Bravos this season on The Athletic, plus catch everything else written on the site by visiting theathletic.com forward slash 755 is real and save 40% on your first year subscription. Jump on that offer, man. I mean, geez, what are you looking for if that's not it? Right, Eric? That's right. <laughs> now to our special guest today, Mark Simon. Mark used to work at uh, ESPN as head researcher for Baseball Tonight and also wrote for ESPN.com. He's the guy who takes kind of the complicated stuff and tries to simplify it for us dummies uh, who don't really easily understand defensive metrics, I think, yet, like we do the other metrics. Um, we've come a long way, I think most of us have, with OPS and and even like weighted on base percentage and stuff like that. But the defensive metrics are still a little tricky. So Mark's here to help us out with that and talk a little bit about the Braves. He's uh, He's got a book. He's part big part of a book that's out, Fielding Bible, Volume 5. Welcome, Mark. Good to have you aboard. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, let's start by – I wanted to just kind of let people know just how far the Braves have come defensively since their rebuilding years, and it's pretty well illustrated by the defensive run saved stat, which is one I think a lot of us are kind of getting a hold of now the last few years. That is one that's a little more easier to understand, kind of a general, like, war. Um, But I'm looking at the book and thinking, after seeing these numbers, that the Braves surely must have improved more than just about any other team in the last five years in that category, correct? Yeah, the, the, they certainly have, but they they were pretty solid last year all around the yeah. time. It wasn't necessarily anywhere that was a weak spot between Freddie at first and Ozzie right. at second, Dancy at short, and Donaldson at third. He's a big loss. Also, uh, when you when Ender went down, I thought maybe they would lose a little something, but I don't think they lost too much uh, from that. Acuna had a decent year defensively, and he's shown, uh, I guess, room to grow in that regard. Uh, and there's there's plenty of good to go around. Certainly, Tyler Flowers behind the plate and pitch framing success is well documented. Uh, so uh, yeah, things uh, things yeah, definitely improved for the Braves considerably over the last few years. Yeah, just uh, from an eye test perspective, and and Eric, you probably can uh, back this up. But Ender 
you know, last year played dinged up. And even when he was in there, you know, he was trying to get his legs back under him and kind of get back in a flow. So he wasn't the same defensive player that he'd been uh, the previous three years when he won all the gold gloves. And he only played 50-some games last year. So obviously he's not going to pile up defensive runs saved in the limited amount of time he was out there. But Acuna, while he's not nearly the center fielder that he is, to me at least, in right field with that with that arm plays so well, uh, there was not much of a drop off when he was in center between him and Ender. Did you did you see that, Eric? Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely did. And um, you know, I it's hard for me to gauge how good Acuna is going to be in center field, having not played it. But I felt like I didn't feel like when Ender went down, like there was this huge drop off or or like it was really hurting the team. And I think that just speaks to Acuna's athletic ability more than anything. Yeah, yeah, he's. He in right field, he's a difference maker, man. That arm, we saw it yeah. like four or five times last year, where he just gunned down somebody, either trying to stretch a single into a double or trying to go from first to third, and they're like just unaware of how strong his arm is. Because I mean, frankly, it doesn't. It's not that apparent in center. He doesn't make the same kind of throws for obvious reasons. Uh, but uh, in right, where and he doesn't have to cover as much ground and stress his legs. So I, he just and he, and he said as much. He just said he's more comfortable in right. So and that's where they're going to play him the majority of times this year. He may have to move over to center occasionally, bad matchups with Ender or if Ender's dinged up or they trade Ender. But that ideally they want him in right field and they'll, and they'll do it, uh, you know, piecemeal it in center between Acuna, Ender, and, uh, you know, well, that's about it and what they've got right now until Pache's ready and they bring him up. Um, but, yeah, what I was talking about with the defensive run saved, Mark, was uh, specifically I was looking at, and this is amazing, when you look at 2015, they were minus 51 defensive runs saved. And that includes 30 defensive runs saved for Angleton Simmons that year. Jesus. Uh, which is pretty remarkable. It was either that year or the next year. I have to look that up. But uh, and Angleton had 30 defensive runs saved. Yeah, it was, it was in 2015. And the team was minus 51. So, I mean, they were pretty much deficient everywhere except Angleton, right? I mean, for the most part. <laughs> Yeah, and also first base. Um, uh, yeah. should acknowledge that Freddie Freeman is, yeah. is a, a standout uh, yeah. just about every day that he's on the field, both on the offensive and the defensive ends. One of the things that's in the book actually is how well he scoops throws. Yes. Interesting kind of thing, because I'm sure, Eric, as a pitcher, you've seen him probably do it time and time and time again, but how do you know that like he's the best at it? Well, it's our company's job to track things like that. So uh, that, that's one of the things. Is that- he the best? the table with our data yes he he came out the best uh i think it was last season we what we track are we track uh scoops and then we track mishandles where if the you know he tried to scoop one and, it, and he didn't uh, make the play and his like it's him last couple of years it's him and before he retired joe mauer uh was up there uh, hosmer typically has been good though he had a pretty bad year with it last year uh but freddie freeman consistently ranks at the top let me ask if you I this heard- then Eric, um, if you had done the assigned homework, you would have seen that chapter, but apparently you did not. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, like, <laughs> how does that affect? Um, how does that affect? You, you know, a, a shortstop or a third baseman or a second baseman's numbers if they have somebody that's really good? Do they lose credit because they have somebody that's just so good at picking it over yeah. there, and vice versa? If they have a terrible first baseman that just can't pick anything, can you make any kind of assumptions? Like, if they didn't have this jackass at first base you know, this, this guy would actually be a really good shortstop. So um, we, I would say that the, the shortstop is benefiting 
from the right. first baseman's uh, scoop age, uh, in scooping in terms of defensive run save. Uh, right. We have a separate metric where we track uh, accuracy of throws by shortstops, where uh, one of the things that is within that stat is um, – did the first baseman have to do something unusual to make the play, whether it would be uh, execute a really difficult scoop or leap off the bag to make the okay. catch? So if a team, if a team wanted to see that, they could see the shortstops or the second baseman or the third baseman's good throw rating. And if you remember a couple of years ago when Donaldson was in Toronto and when he was struggling mm-hmm. uh, before he came to the Braves, his good throw rating was pretty poor because he kept pulling his first baseman off the bag with his throws, uh, whereas Last year, uh, I think it got considerably better uh, because he Freddie was picked he was every day. <laughs> well, look, yep. Let me ask you, Mark. You go ahead. Because we've talked about that here for years. We thought Freddie Freeman was way underrated for his first yeah. five years in the big leagues because he's been doing what, you know, he's finally getting credit for on the defensive metrics. He's been doing that ever since he came up as far as those using his six foot five range and length and stretching. And he used to do the splits all the time. He doesn't do it anymore as he's gotten older, but he used to do the splits like two or three times a game where he'd just get that extra inch or two out reaching for that ball. And it would make a difference in that split second bang, bang play. But I was wondering why he didn't get as much credit for that until the last few years. Um, I would, I would have to look on that, but uh, I know that, that in the last few that he's been very good. Uh, uh-huh. with the, the scooping throws. Um, and his, I know that his range numbers, like the way that our stat, stats work is we're essentially not just looking at put out assistant errors, we're looking at, well, if the ball is hit there, how often does a player turn it into an out? Uh, right. And then grading against that. If you make the play on a difficult play, you're getting, you're getting a high point kind of total for it. And if you don't make what we would consider a play that almost everybody makes um, mm-hmm. based on where it's hit, how hard it's hit, whether it's a line drive or a ground ball, you're losing points. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Freddie had anything where he was like super in any direction, but he was just consistently good going uh, in mm-hmm. any direction and handling bunts and, and handling throws. And uh, I think we all the first throw it to the plate to get the out at the plate. Uh, he's been, uh, he's been decent. The thing to remember, too, with scooping throws is that almost everyone is pretty good at it. So the difference between, like, the best and the guy who's, like, fifth is probably really slim. Mm -hmm. If if you were just watching eye test, you might say that the guy who ranks sixth, he's the best guy. That's fine. Um, Mm -hmm. you'll, You'll notice a difference between first and last. But most guys are really good at scooping throws. So like there isn't necessarily that much of an advantage to be gained from it. Uh, but Freddie's kind of separated himself in that regard the last couple of years. I just know, and, and Eric knows this better than I do as a pitcher, but I just know the guys, especially on the left side of the infield, have said for years, and Andrelton used to say it too because he's throwing 98, you know, and bouncing it occasionally or throwing it a little high because he's throwing so off balance. And Freddie made some plays that I just – he used every bit of his six foot five. And he made some incredible scoops for years, and Andrelton always gave him credit for that. But he just threw it in know, the Eric, vicinity. <laughs> yeah, Simmons exactly. would just—I mean, that's uh, if you watch a lot of his highlights uh, from his Braves years, he would throw balls and short hop Freddie by sixty feet. <laughs> you know, he'd just do random things. He'd just get it in the vicinity, and Freddie was so good at picking it. Um, I mean, that that speaks a lot about the confidence you're going to have with a guy like Freddie. I don't know if there's any way to measure those kind of things, but. 
Um, yeah. He would just get it in the vicinity and get rid of it, and Freddie would pick everything. I mean, that's why it was so fun for me to watch. And I've always thought Freddie was the best at at picking it that I've seen. So I'm glad that those numbers match up. I was I was looking at this, Mark. I was looking at your your book, and uh, it went from for the Braves, it went from minus 51 DRS defensive run saved in 2015 to minus 14 defensive run saved in 16 to minus 13 in 17. Still bad. To then it jumped all the way from minus 17 and 17 to plus 67 defensive runs saved in 2018 and plus 41 last year, the two years where they've won back-to-back division titles. I guess that's no coincidence, huh, that they went from back to, to defense to uh, be a defending, uh, to being uh, division title winners. Yeah, if you look at the leaders in the leaderboard for defensive runs saved, the Dodgers, the Diamondbacks, uh, mm-hmm. We're at the very top last year. The Astros, the American League, the Indians typically rank very well. The best teams tend to be at the top. It's a lot harder to make the playoffs and uh, win a World Series as a bad defensive team uh, than it is as a good defensive team. Uh, you can go through over a 10-year sample, and the information bears that out, that uh, if you have guys that can make plays, and essentially the pitching team, too, um, I was on MLB Network the other day, and John Smith has talked about this in the past, that um, teams with high defensive runs saved uh, tend to have pitchers that hit their spots and that mm-hmm. get ground balls that are that uh, Paul DeYoung, like the Cubs are a good example last year, that uh, Paul DeYoung had great defensive run save numbers, but you would never think of him as like this super athletic shortstop. He just plays short. He's there every day. He gets a lot of chances. Uh, he gets chances that are in areas that he can get to. He's, he's pretty good at going to his left and making the play up the middle. And over time, that accumulates, and his rating comes out pretty well, but he's not someone that's going to make you think that he's like Angelton or something like that. Uh, the Cardinals place here were another good example. The Cardinals uh, turned ground balls into outs at the highest rate of any team in baseball. And uh, they made they won the Central. They made the playoffs. So the 16 Cubs and Indians, I think, were one-two in that stat. Uh, if you if you have infielders that can feel and outfielders that can go get it, uh, you're going to probably win a lot of games because they're good athletes uh, when they come to plate and run the bases too. Eric, when you think that, and and Mark, you could probably uh, uh, quantify this, but I would think that Andrew Jones that that could apply to outfielders as well because to me, Andrew Jones who was the greatest center fielder of at least a generation and probably at least since Willie Mays. But Andrew Jones, the best I ever saw, it was a perfect storm of he has incredible instincts. I literally was able to take a step in the right direction before the ball was hit, which people might think is hyperbole, but he did it. And if you watch video, he did it. But I think a lot of that goes to having three Hall of Fame pitchers pitch while you also had the most instinctive center fielder in the game in center field. It was kind of this perfect storm for Andrew Jones in his 10 straight gold glove years with uh, most of the time having at least two from John Smoltz, uh, Greg Maddox, and Tom Glavin pitching up uh, in the rotation. Yeah, and that's that's one of the really tough things about all the defensive shifts and things that that teams do. And yeah, and I remember Roger McDowell being frustrated with it a few times because I'd come in and I didn't throw a changeup, but you would have your numbers where you shifted based on what they did against lefties. But I was a different lefty, and sometimes he felt like um, you know it, the shift wouldn't match up with my strength and my repertoire. Where 
Um, if if I was going to throw a changeup to a righty, yeah, they're more likely to pull it. But I don't throw a changeup. I'm throwing ninety percent fastballs, so they're more likely to be hitting it up the middle or the other way. And those kind of things, I always wonder if 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 the stats have advanced enough so that the shifts can be catered to a specific pitcher or if it's kind of loose. But I think the teams that are really, really good take every little detail like that into consideration and have their shifts almost custom tailored to a specific pitcher versus just like left-handed versus right-handed. Yeah. In fact, I, I know for sure that like a team like Tampa Bay does that. Right. I went and saw them last year and they're moving guys around based on the count where if it's a one strike count, they've got guys in one spot. They've got two strike count. They've got guys in another. They have, it was explained to me before the game. I said, well, are you guys going to form an outfield? Anyone uh, today? I was talking to one of the, the coaches and he said that the matchup that would do it. And he gave me like the specific picture. And he said, there are a couple of hitters on the other team um, that, that that's uh, how they would do it. So I think teams, the good teams certainly are very specific in how they choose to align their defenses and using, uh, using different things for pitchers based on the fact that, as you said, we didn't charge kick up. Right. Um, if you looked at last year, the Braves defensive run leader was Josh Donaldson, who had 15 in his NL comeback player of the year award season. A lot of people gave, thought he gave Nolan Arenado a run for his money for Gold Glove, even though Arenado won it because he's won it every year since he's been in the big leagues. And it's hard to argue against Arenado. But Josh was pretty pretty outstanding last year. And the year before that, Ender Inciarte led the team with 17 defensive runs saved. That was his third straight year winning a Gold Glove. Um, but with, with Donaldson gone, I, I don't know that there'll be a big fall off for the Braves in defensive runs saved as long as, you know, Freddie is healthy uh, and – if Enciarte, depending on, you know, how much he plays, he could be a platoon player. Um, you got Camargo at third, and Camargo was real solid in 2018 when he was the primary third baseman. He was a solid defensive player that year. Uh, and then you got, I think you wrote about these guys a little bit, Mark, uh, Ozzy and, and Ronald Acuna, who are both just getting better and better defensively and should give you plenty of defensive runs saved at second base and right field. So I don't know that to expect the Braves to fall off significantly, if at all, in defensive runs saved this year. Yeah, I guess the interesting thing is, like, you have the theoretical number, which is what we give you, right? We give you yeah. that a team's got 50 or a team's got 75. Uh, and then you have kind of the baseball number, which is Johan Camargo doesn't make a play that Donaldson would have made with mm-hmm. two men on with runners on second and third, yeah. like Keith Spotman in the yeah. eighth inning of a game. And those are two runs lost, but not necessarily when you look at it in the statistical package, but you know that you lost those two runs because you didn't have that guy. So I guess this, the one thing that you lose with Donaldson is you lose kind of a, a security blanket, I would imagine, for the pitchers. Uh, although you are pretty strong as you just ran through, literally just got everywhere else. Yeah, he, he was a security blanket because several of the pitchers, especially the young ones, Freed uh, said many times, and Soroka also said how much those guys – Loved having him behind him because he made plays all year. Freed uh, especially had had him make like three plays in one game behind him where, you know, Donaldson's got a cannon, so he could bobble a ball and still throw a guy out at third. You know, kind of like uh, Rafael Fercal used to do it short, and then, of course, Simmons, but he rarely bobbled the ball, so he didn't really – but he just threw just enough to, to nail a guy, whether it was, you know, 90 or 98 to get a guy out. So, but, yeah, Josh was uh, – a they liked having him behind him for sure. That's interesting because it so so basically it's not 
you wouldn't look at a play like that where, shoot, he should have made that and two runs actually score. That doesn't cost him two runs on his rating immediately is what you're saying. No, it doesn't. But that's, I think that's a common misconception with the stat that it's like we, we presume uh, – uh, like home run robberies are a good example for that. So for home run robberies, we're essentially, instead of giving whatever it was that they robbed. The grand slam, yeah. Yeah, we're giving them a run and a half, I think it is, because we're working off of the belief that the guy would have tried just as hard if there was no one on base as he would have as if there were three men on base. And the average home run robbery is worth one and a half. Uh, so it's not like when we say run save, it's not a literal, this is how many he saved. He threw a guy out of the plate. He saved a run statistic. It's looking at the aggregate and looking at the averages of how things work. How many runs in theory did he save? So it's, it's a, Got you. I guess to be fair, it, it's like an estimated number as opposed to a literal, hey, this is it. Well, you have to do it like that, right? Yeah, yeah, I think you have to do it like that. And I want to make a point that if, if it, like, there are thresholds, like zero is average, um, uh, five to 10 is good, 10 to 15, uh, and this is on a, I guess, a per thousand inning basis, 10 to 15 is pretty good. Anything above 15, you're probably a gold glove candidate. And then 30 and above, you're Matt Chapman or your Simmons or your Kiermaier in his best year in center field. Uh, 30 is an, is an elite player uh, that, that kind of went head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, and that guy, I think you would know watching that season that that guy was worth a lot of, a lot of runs, whether it be theoretical or literal. There'd be you, no uh, mistake in it either way. <laughs> yeah, I thought, you, I, I thought it was interesting what you had wrote here about Acuna. You said there's still room for growth with Acuna. He had 21 defensive misplays and errors related to catching fly balls and line drives, the most of any outfielder in the majors, but he had enough positive value to more than make up for that. Man, that's that really goes with the eye test, because I would say the same thing. Acuna made so many plays last year, coming in especially in the first half of the season. Eric, remember how many times he came in and tried to make that catch on, on sinking liners, the kind of catch that Andrew used to make diving forward? Acuna would try to make it doing a sliding catch and, almost, and missed it almost every time. And he kind of figured that out as he went along and, and stopped trying to make it. He didn't have to go to his to a slide to do it. He could just kind of reach down and catch it. Yeah, he's he's learning the game at the big league level. Yeah. And and that's right. that's what's so exciting about him is is a number like that where you say, you know, it's there's so much potential with him. You can watch him do some stuff in the field where you're like, you know, he's he's gonna learn and get better there. And he's still provided that positive value. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it's just crazy how how talented he is. That, that can't. He'll, he'll probably have fewer than, than 21 last year. And I, I want to say he had 21. He also played like 160 games. So the opportunity right. was there for him to mess up. And I do want to explain the system that we're talking about. So you know how when you're keeping score, um, you know, single, double, triple, error, out, whatever, however you're doing it in your scorecard, 6-3. We have a system by which we have people uh, watching. Uh, for the most part, uh, people that played high-end high school baseball, low-end college, uh, small division one, division two, uh, some division three, uh, that are watching the games and listening to the broadcasters and, and listening for point outs, essentially, uh, where we're charting 30 different categories of was this a good baseball play and 60 categories of defensive misplays. 
which wouldn't be reflected in a typical scoring system. It right. would be like if a, if a guy slipped, you know, if you gave up a double because your center fielder slipped and fell when he would have cost a double 99% of the time, that's not your fault. Double, it's a double in the yeah. scorecard. But we're, we're noting it as the defensive player missed up, messed up. Right. And we have teams that subscribe to our data that use that in order to justify working with a player on a certain thing. Well, you led the league in this thing. We need to make sure that yeah. you stay on your feet. And you can uh, evaluate pitchers better, too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's so much more accurate than, than the scorekeeping in the press box, where, for instance, they're still doing this archaic system of, well, the ball didn't hit his glove. In other words, if you're going to screw up, screw up royally and completely miss the ball, and you won't get charged an error. You know what I mean? Or, you know, used to have third basemen that would come in on a ball, and if they barehanded it, even if they had time, if they barehanded it and missed it, it was always a hit because they chose. Yeah. And, and a lot of guys would right. opt for the barehand to keep their numbers yeah. better. You know, little things like that. I'm, I'm curious how that would reflect in it. Would you see a guy and be like, he didn't need to barehand that and knock him? Or, or is that something that could slide by? So we, um, we have people that are watching, and every game is watched. I think for that statistic, every game is watched twice. Um, and they're not just watching and making their own judgment necessarily, but they're listening to what the broadcasters are saying. Because certainly, I think if Eric O'Flaherty or Paul Bird or Glavin or whoever's doing the game uh, says, boy, that's not his fault. I think, uh, or boy, he, uh, he should have gotten that if he didn't slip and fall. And, and, you know, you might not have seen it, but he slipped and fell and it cost him a step. Uh, we're noting that uh, certainly when we're, uh, when we're tracking. That's cool. It's a cool thing that we have. Not a lot of, like, it's not something that we put out publicly a lot for the purpose of the book we did. Uh, and if people want to read that, certainly a good, uh, good thing that's uh, sprinkled that's throughout the book. Uh, yeah, our good field. It's, it was a system that was devised by a name that I mentioned some players kind of don't necessarily like, but we like them uh, for our purposes. Uh, Bill James many years ago. That's Let me cool. ask you uh, um, specifically, it, it, it's written in the book. Uh, you had a thing, a section called a potential catching issue where you said the signing of free agent, Travis Darno, the Braves are committed with the signing of Travis Darno. The Braves are committed to two catchers who have a history of struggling to stop base dealers which is true. I mean, Tyler's numbers are down in that, in that regard. And Darno wasn't, uh, wasn't, uh, hasn't been good in, in since, you know, he's been up with the Mets. Uh, but I should say, and this is how this, this could change. Obviously when you go to certain teams, the Braves are really priding themselves on their analytic improvement in the last few years. And they hired Sal Fasano two years ago as catching coach. And they've, the catchers who've come through, whether they be, uh, Zook who went on to the nationals, or last year, even Brian McCann, who came over, they've and Tyler Flowers, who's been a solid defensive catcher and great pitch framer, they've all said how much Fasano has helped them because Sal does things that they've never had a catching coach do before, and he tailors his program to individual catchers. But he sees things in each catcher and makes them more fluid and athletic, and and their and the catch and throw phase and pitch framing and everything they've been able to improve. Um, they said that they've already seen something in Travis Darno. And Travis said the same thing, an adjustment he's already making that he sees a difference in. So is that something that you can improve in late in your career, like Travis Darno over the past the age of 30? Oh, boy. I, I, don't, I don't know that as a, yeah. as a study. Uh, we could certainly look at it. Yeah. But I, uh, I would be slightly skeptical for this reason, and this is a personal one for me, is that I saw him for 
uh, his Met career uh, every game. And the thing that was the trouble spot for him was the strength of his arm. Uh, uh-huh. If they can do something to, to right. improve the strength of his arm, all right, they'd be a little bit better. But his arm strength, he had Tommy John. Uh, right. His arm strength was uh, always a troublesome thing uh, throughout his catching career. He does make up for that by being a guy who, in the earlier part of his career, catches that low strike, really low pitch, really well, and gets extra strikes for his pitchers. Mm-hmm. So the value of that can supersede the value of the occasional stolen base against him. Uh, but uh, but he's I'd be if they think they improved uh, him throwing wise against uh, base stealers. I'll be curious to see that. that it's something that he's been needing help in. And that's the area in the fluidity of the catch and release. Just a small tweak. They said they made one in Tampa. They fit at Southside. They fixed something, but they neglected another area, and that's what they've been working on. Uh, and also, they think his arm is stronger after the TJ being a full another full year from it. So we'll see. Um, you know, I'm skeptical as well. But all those guys have sworn by Fasano. Apparently, this guy is kind of the uh, uh, horse whisperer when it comes to. Uh, when it comes to catchers, you know, and certain, doing certain drills and everything. As a former long-term catcher who got by, you know, as a really strong defensive catcher without having all the tools, uh, he, he's a guy that's really studied it. And they apply the analytics and everything. So uh, it was a good hire for them, uh, the hire up adding a catching coach. Uh, how many teams even have a catching coach? Is that becoming common now? Because the Braves didn't used to have one specifically called a catching coach. Yeah, it's I've never seen it. <laughs> I I didn't I didn't see one uh during my career. They they'd have special guys, you know, like yeah. a rover, roving catching instructor, right. but it, I don't teams, yeah. I don't remember a team ever having a dedicated big league catching coach for sure. Mm-hmm. So the Yankees stole one from the Twins uh this past year because the Twins catching coach last year did wonders with Mitch Garver where uh they took his defensive run save and he basically flipped them or got, got or made them significantly better. Uh, pitch framing, I think, was his main area. Uh, and the Yankees uh, basically, uh, I guess, paid him good money. And now he's working with Gary Sanchez to try and make him into an elite mm-hmm. framer. That'd let me be ask scary. you, uh, before, we, uh, before we let you go, Mark, let me ask you something. How is Dansby Swanson viewed defensively by those in your position, by the analytics guys? Because, you know, just watching him, you see the guy make a spectacular game-ending play like he made in Arizona, you know, a couple years ago, and, and making another play that you go, now, see, you don't teach that. That's instinct. See, he'll make us play like that once in a while that you just go, that makes him special. And then he'll, you know, mess up a routine play. And then ultimately you look at his defensive run saved, and they're not really special. So I'm just wondering, how is he viewed from guys in your position? Oh boy, there was a year a couple of years ago where I think he did pretty well, although that may have been a product of where they put him on the field. Like the, yeah. the way that our system works now is that it takes the positioning out of the mix since that's a team thing and it just looks at your individual uh, skills. Uh, I, I'm going to preface this. Let's say he's, I would say he's, he likely comes out as slightly above average, but that's pretty yeah. good because if you look at the, the 10th right. best shortstop could yeah. be the best shortstop in a given year. Right. Uh, so I, w- I don't know that he's necessarily with Simmons and Lindor and Javi Baez and the, the super great guys, uh, but he's kind of, I don't think it would be uh, a lie to say that he's in that, you know, second, uh, maybe the bottom part of the second tier uh, uh-huh. from a statistical standpoint. Let me add, and, and speaking of Simmons, let's get back to him and round it up with him before we before we go here, because Eric and I both uh, are in agreement on Andrelton Simmons. Uh, we're presidents of his fan club and think that that's the stupidest trade that uh, Copy ever made while he was here. 
Um, he had, like I said, 30 defensive runs saved in 15 when the Braves had minus 51 overall. Brings me to another point, which is referenced in the kind of explanatory essay you wrote at the front of the book, which is about the evolution of defensive stats in the past 20 years and how, they, how they're embraced by so many in the industry. You had a section with a subtitle, The Numbers Don't Always Match Your Eye Test. And I got, I got to admit that I'm in that group that you're alluding to there because it's the main reason I have an occasional problem accepting some defensive stats. You wrote specifically, sometimes you're going to be surprised what the stats tell you, but don't let one disagreement damage your understanding of the metric. For example, by our measures, by our measures, Paul DeYoung of the Cardinals tied for the MLB leading defensive run saved at shortstop last season. Are major league managers going to buy into that when they watch players like Andrelton Simmons and Nick Ahmed? Probably not, but it's important to look at the components that go into DeYoung having the most defensive run saved at the position rather than dismiss the idea outright. I'm dismissing the idea outright. Mark, because Andrelton Simmons is phenomenal, man. He's like he's like Andrew Jones was in center. Yes, he was hurt. So he was hurt last year. Defend now. yourself. <laughs> yes. Okay. So on a par. See, we we do everything on a whole basis. We don't yeah. Do the you know home runs that bad, run save per thousand innings on a run save per. If we were doing run save per thousand innings. Andrelton Simmons would be, and Matt Chapman would be the two best guys, and Gerard Dyson would be the best outfielder every year because he plays. He typically plays six, seven hundred innings and racks up defensive runs saved because he's he's stealing uh, doubles and triples with his speed. Uh, so yes, uh, and I do want to say you're, there are so many people who will say, "Oh, the metrics didn't like Eric Hosmer. How could they be right? The metrics didn't like whoever. How, the metrics love Paul DeYoung. I think he's the tenth best shortstop." You can't look at it like that. I think we've reached a, a point with now the StatCast numbers and our numbers and other places that are doing this where this stuff is, is fairly well established and this stuff has been proven out over time to be pretty good. Uh, so I, I am interested in any least two years, last three years, last four years, last five years, he's up at the top. It's him, Monkey Betts, and, and like Chapman. Um, and those are the best guys. Our numbers are, I guess I would say, are here to stay. And, and they're pretty good. And yeah. uh, and I think they will like Angelton Simmons this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah. Haas is, is fine, but he's not even in the same conversation with Angelton. But the, yeah, I think there's only a couple of players that are. Quick shout out to the, the other authors of the book, uh, John Dewan, who's the owner of our company, and Brian Reese, uh, who is one of our uh, computer programming uh, experts. Uh, they certainly put in a considerable amount of time, too. So I just want to make yeah. sure that it's, it's noted. The book's a joint effort, actasports.com, if I can plug where you can get it, actasports.com. Great book, man. Uh, also, oh, oh, I can't let you go without asking this one, because this is the one that always bothers me. And maybe there's an explanation that I that 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 I'm just uh, that just it has eluded me so far. But I'm baseball reference, for instance, says Lou Gehrig had 11.8 WAR in 1927 in his MVP year. I want to know how can we trust that it's even remotely as accurate as the WAR today when you're trying to put defensive metrics and WAR on players a hundred years ago before games were even televised. Do we just trust uh, eyewitness accounts of plays that were made, where they were made? Please explain to me how that's done. Cause there's gotta be an explanation that I just am not aware of. 
there is, and I, I got to think of phrases right. It allows you to look at at put emphasis and errors in a in a way that isn't fielding percentage. In a way, it would say, okay, he made more plays than typical. And in fact, if you look at baseball reference, I don't think they do it necessarily that far back. He just, Lou Gehrig had an incredible 1927. Uh, but I know that, I think it's since 1954, they have this other defensive stat. And if you look at their all-time leaderboard, you'll see Blake Wilson tops at third base, and you'll see Ozzie Smith at the mm-hmm. top at short, and Keith Hernandez up near the top at first base, which would lead me to believe that those metrics are, right. however this person these people came up with it uh, are pretty decent uh, if they were able to come to that conclusion. So if, if you don't, if you don't want to compare Lou Gehrig's 1927 yeah. defensive stats yeah. to the current day, I, I can't stop you on that one. Uh, but, uh, I, would tell you, I would tell you that, that the historical stuff, uh, maybe not, uh, perfect, but don't let uh, very good get in the way of uh, right. what, I don't know, like the phrase. You know what I'm saying? Don't let perfection oh, yeah. get in the way of liking the stat. I hear you, man. I just have always been wonder. I've wondered about that. How they've tried to go back and retroactively, uh, you know, recreate games before they were even on television. You know, some doddering old scorekeeper in the press box wrote, "Oh, he will. He went a long way to make that catch." <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I just get curious about that. But, yeah, that's a good explanation there. Hey, look, man, it's been great having you on here. You've answered a lot of our questions, and I think we feel a little better about things. Uh, just make sure Andrelton Simmons appears number one on the defensive run save, and you'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, guys. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks a lot. Mark Simon from Sports Info Solutions has been our guest. He's got a book out. His company has a book out that he takes a big part in, Fielding Bible, Volume 5. So go out and get it. Hey, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, man, you had to have been pleased with uh, what you saw from your man, King Felix, Felix Hernandez, in his first start of the year. Even though it's two innings, even though it's a grapefruit league, it was encouraging. It's a good start, man. You know, you, you can't make the team this early, but you can definitely eliminate yourself from the coaches and, and general managers' uh, plans. You, you can just you can look that bad. And I, I thought he looked pretty good. His curveball looked really sharp. Um, he was He was throwing a lot of strikes. He was competing. Felix always competes. Um, you know, I, I thought he left some, some breaking balls up in the zone and, and got away with one or two, but you know, it's, it's spring training that's going to happen. And you could tell he was a little frustrated with that. And he knew those weren't, the, it's not like he threw those and felt good about him. He knew when he, when he left a couple up, but overall, man, he was pumping strikes, being competitive, got, got a strikeout or two, um, his changeups. I mean, it's still there that, that pitch, I think he struck one guy out and he kind of yanked it a little bit, but, um, for a first outing of spring, man, it looked pretty good. Yeah, we should we should mention it was against the crappy Baltimore team, and they didn't even bring the regulars over most of them. So it was a very it was a particularly crappy Baltimore team. That said, he made some good pitches, and the breaking ball, like you said, was really impressive. I thought for the first outing of spring, uh, and I liked his energy and how fast he was working, yeah. and just the energy out there. It looked like a new guy to me. I think. You've mentioned several times the fresh start's good for him and that he's got the weight of the, the you know, the burden of all that pressure in Seattle. And, you know, nobody's really expecting a whole lot from him here. And, and, and you know, it's familiar. Very few people in Braves country are real familiar with the background and how much he slipped in recent years because they didn't see him pitch. So, um, you know, he's he's uh, I can tell you he's fit in really well in the clubhouse. And you said he would. And his his energy and how popular he seems to be. 
not just among the Latin guys, but everybody he seems to be amused and entertained by him. Uh, you know, he, he's a guy that from day one walks in, you know, uh, with a smile on his face and a strut and, uh, you know, he dresses cool as hell. <laughs> and yeah. I, I like him. I like him. He brings kind of like Josh Donaldson. He doesn't, he doesn't tone it down to come in and fit in. He just comes in and he says, here I am. This is who I am. I'm King Felix. Let's do this. And I like it. Yeah. And he's, he's just got a special energy when he pitches, man. Um, it, it's always, it's always been really enjoyable for me to watch his starts, even when I play against him or something like that, man. Cause you can just tell how invested he is and he gets so fired up and he's such a good competitor, man. He's just a, he just competes on his day to pitch. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, the, the thing for me that, that I think it, it's like you mentioned him not having to, um, be the guy and not having to answer questions. Like if he pitched poorly the other day, then, you know, it would have just been, oh, it's his first spring start. But if he did that in Seattle, it'd be here we go again. And fighting off the here we go again mindset, you know, that's one of the harder things to do when everybody starts asking you, are you going to suck again this year? And it's just, you almost get caught up and remind, constantly reminded how bad you've been. And it's, it's easy to get carried away with that mentally. But, you know, he, he knows how important it is for him to pitch well. If you watched, uh, after his last, uh, I think he struck the last hitter out and kind of did a little skip off the mound. He was invested, man. It's, it's game one of spring training. He's got 15 years in the big leagues. The guy's jumping off the mound when he, yeah. when he completes his outing with a strikeout and, and he knows he's off to a good start. So, um, for him, you know, I think he knows how important everything is. And man, I'm just, uh, I just can't help but root for him. And I have to say, after the outing, I mean, we've talked to a few pitchers so far after their outings. I mean, he seemed more energized and excited than anybody else we've talked to. Yeah, because he knows <laughs> I mean, what's on the line, man. He's fighting yeah. for his career. You would think, you would, well, you know, some guys might come in, $25 million a year pitcher the last five, six years. Guy's made $200 million in his career, has to sign a minor league deal, earn a spot, to even make a yeah, million dollars prorated. <laughs> you might think he might come in with some kind of an attitude or, you know, it's a first game of spring training I ain't really worried about. It. But he's not. He came in, you know, acting like, it's important to get off to a good start. And he said, I'm excited, man. I'm ready to have another one. He said, you know, for the first game, it's just spring training, first game, but I felt like the command was there and for the breaking ball to be working like it was and the change up. He was really, uh, he was really pleased with that. The ball was moving, you know, his, his sinker was moving his, his curveball I thought had some really good bite to it. His split or change up, whatever he calls it, that, that pitch is nasty. And he uh-huh. got a strikeout on that. Um, you, you know, he's, his stuff's his stuff's there. It's it's not what it used to be. He's not throwing ninety eight anymore. But like I said, man, I just I don't doubt competitors. I I I have a big belief in him. Just his the competitive side of him um, that he'll just find a way. And and it's been a long few years for him. And he's going to have to find a way, obviously, because he can't just overpower hitters anymore. But um, you know, his just that competitor in him, man. I just believe in it. And and I can't help but be a homer. I've known the guy since he was sixteen, seventeen years old. And I, and I know what's inside of him. I know I know what he's made of. So hopefully, man, he just keeps it up, you know, and, and he just keeps keeps pumping strikes and has a good spring and, and he can help this team because I know he's going to fit in with the guys really well. If that was any indication he's got uh, of what he's got left in the tank, the Braves might have gotten themselves another steal of a deal. Uh, someone who can flourish in a new setting the way Annabelle Sanchez did a couple of years ago. After Detroit, he struggled mightily in his last few years with the Tigers, and they released him in spring training. The Braves picked him up, and he was a difference and, and helped the Braves get the, win a division title. They probably wouldn't have won it without him. So, And he parlayed that into a two-year deal with the, with the Nats. So at worst, the Braves have someone who can compete with Sean Newcomb and others for that fifth starter job, 
And that's particularly important right now because with Cole Hamels starting spring training injured, and he's out for probably another couple more weeks at least before he resumes his throwing program and really gets back into it, he's probably out till May. So you're talking about instead of just a fifth starter job and either and it being probably either Nukem or Kingfields, you're probably talking about both those guys or someone else making the rotation. They're, they got two openings, in other words. And so then it could be interesting because – if King Felix and Nukem can both get into the season, they're both going to get three or four starts at least before uh, Cole Hamels comes back. And then you got, then you might have an interesting uh, decision to make as right. far as Nuke or King Felix. What's but his, that, uh, what's that his salary? To have. Who's that? Felix. He's only making a million prorated uh, if he makes the – for any time spent in the big leagues. <laughs> yeah. So I mean that's so, that's the type of that's a really good situation for him too though since he already has the money that he didn't try to battle and get three million or four right. million because it actually ups your odds of making the team having as low a salary as possible. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to my last few years I was asking my agent if I could sign for the league minimum because uh-huh. just knowing that that gives you a better chance, but that's something the union will only let uh, like a, a veteran sign for a million. They won't let you take any less. You know, but that's mm-hmm. that's just the thing where you can tell he just wants to play. He doesn't need the money, and, and that's something that I like to see in him. Um, but that ups his odds because if if it comes down to him or a guy that's not on the forty man, him at seven hundred thousand versus having to free up a, a another spot for a forty man guy, um, they both be only taking that forty man spot versus Felix needing three million to be on that team. Yeah, and it just allows you not to rush one of those other guys. Last year they had to rush Kyle Wright and yeah. Bryce Wilson. Remember they started the year at Philly. Those huge crowds uh, at Philly sold out in that first weekend, and both Bryce Wilson and Kyle Wright had to make a start in that four-game series, and neither one of them was ready for it yet. Right, and They're not in that scenario this year. They're not going to have to do that or rush anybody. Uh, like you said, King Felix, he's made $220 million in his career, man. So yeah, he's it's good. Not like, yeah, <laughs> as far as I know, he hadn't blown right. half of it. So I think he's good to go, man. He's just he wants to He wants to prove people wrong. And I know he wants to stick it to the you know the Mariners who, who who cast him aside and you've as chronicled by you that how they you know some people leaked some stuff about him his work habits and all that so he shows up here twenty pounds lighter and ready to go and make them wish that they had uh, not given up on him so sometimes that's what it takes change of scenery for a get to to kind of bring a guy a reality check and and, and light a fire under a guy so he looks ready to me. Yeah, you just got to wait and see and see how camp plays out for him once he starts getting stretched out and, and facing, you know, the, the A-game lineups and all that. But that's a great first step for him, man, and I know that felt good. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to ask you about is, have you noticed that, you know, none of these guys is probably going to be on the opening day roster, um, barring injury, Chad Tabakamai. But you've got – this is kind of unusual. You've got four guys in camp right now who are six foot six or taller. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle Muller, who's a beast, who said told me he's up to 270. I mean, and this is this Jesus. is like this is JJ Watt, Rob Gronkowski 272. This isn't this is <laughs> this isn't Bartolo Cologne. I've the guy's taking his shirt off, and it's like, holy crap, man. He is huge. Uh then Patrick Weigel, who's you know, finally back from the TJ, he's about 32 months removed from it. This is a guy that at 22 would have been the next guy up in 2017. Uh, he's got good start. stuff. Yeah, he was going to get called up to start, and he blew out. And, you know, missed the whole year in 2018, basically, a year and a half. And then last year, put up good numbers in AA, AAA. And now he's a, he's a bullpen candidate. 
And I think we're going to see him make his major league debut probably sooner than later. Then Sabaka, who, you know, he's got a filthy slider. He just hasn't put it together yet. You know, he's, he's prone to walking too many guys. He's six seven. And then this beast, I've done something on Brian Boyce, uh, Bryce Boyce, who I'm going to write a little bit more about uh, later. Bryce Ball, I should, I'm sorry, I said boy. Uh, Bryce Ball, who is 21, is a first base prospect from Dallas Baptist, who somehow slipped to the 24th round last year. And I still haven't found anybody to tell me really a good explanation on why he slipped. Even the guys that the Braves took in the first round are like, uh, like I talked to Shay. Langoliers, who played at Baylor and faced Bryce Ball at Dallas Baptist, and he said, "We all pitched around. We all knew what he was capable of. We we were scared. We were wary of him, you know, when we played them. So I don't know how he slipped, but this is a guy that he's called Drago because he looks just like Drago from Rocky Four. He does. Uh, this guy, and he's got huge power, and he's not a guy that hit 200 in the minors last year either. When he came up, he hit 300, and he doesn't strike out a ton either. So." It's going to be interesting to watch him. By the time he's ready for the big leagues, they might have the DH over here. The Braves might have gotten a hell of a pick in that 24th round. Yeah, you know, I just – I feel like athletes in general are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, maybe that's just human evolution. But, I mean, I don't remember guys this size when, when I was coming into the league. I mean, maybe Richie Sexton was really tall, six yep. six eight or something like that. or but there just wasn't that many giant players like that. And you go into a MLB clubhouse now, man, it almost looks like a combination of football and basketball players. <laughs> There's so many big just animals on these teams. It's, it's crazy. I, I, I think that's part of why you see so many more guys throwing 100 and whatnot. But the training, everything guys are doing to get bigger and stronger, It's the game is really evolving and changing, that's for sure. And Mueller spent two years at driveline, so he's not just a guy that's up there brooting his way through this thing. He's really sophisticated and wants to be better. And he talked about how his long limbs, he need drivelines really helped him connect his whole thing. Uh, he's still raw in that he's still looking to, you know, to put it all together consistently because he's bound he's he's prone to having little walk attacks, you know. Yeah. Uh like he made his debut the other day, he was a little excited. He hits two guys, he nearly hit the first guy. That guy hits his singles. Then he hits the next two guys. No, no concerns about either of them charging the mound. Because <laughs> nobody's charging the mound against this guy, man. Nobody. Right. <laughs> uh, and then the next guy, and then he kind of showed what he's capable of doing because he strikes out the next two, almost gets out of it. Uh, and then he walked the, the the next guy walked a run in, and Snit goes out there, and they told him that he actually struck that guy out. They called that a ball four. So he could have got out of it. So he kind of we saw the spectrum of what Moeller's capable of, and I think this is a guy that's potentially still capable of being a really good uh, draft pick for the Braves. Uh, at worst case scenario, he's a guy legitimately could be a power hitter because he hit bombs in high school and won like home run derbies at some of those all star games. So. Uh, if they ever need him to hit again, they could always switch him back. But, you know, they really like his stuff. I and mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's a guy that throws in the upper 90s. And last year put up some pretty good numbers, pretty impressive numbers in double A. Yeah, he'll just, he'll just have to shift his focus to to handling those situations and, and learning, you know, what his flaws are and get a couple keys he can lock in on to throw strikes and, and get himself back in the zone faster. You know, it seems like a lot of times with especially guys that are jacked, you know, like young meathead type of guys, and I say that because I was one too. I wasn't jacked, but I was a meathead. Um, 
you you start learning your mechanics and learning your mental uh, weaknesses and, and things you can change to get yourself back in the zone faster so that maybe instead of walking those first two guys, he only goes 2-0 on the first guy. Then he steps off, remembers hit, kind of what his tendencies are to do wrong, thinks about the flight of the ball coming out of his hand and just slows down. And that that's a big thing, getting the big leagues is slowing the game down. Um, but I think he's got the strength part handled. It sounds like being 270. <laughs> oh. So now, now you kind of shift your focus. You keep doing your work or workouts or whatnot, but you shift your focus to, you know, the mental side of the game and, and figuring out, um, how can I handle these situations and how can I calm myself down and, and not be such a meathead out there? You know, that's what I had to do. And once I learned to calm down and just, you know, take a little off and back off, cause that, that throwing 99 mindset is, is contagious too. And it, it's almost, self-destructive sometimes you get in a jam and you want to throw harder and overpower hitters and you just can't do that in the big leagues so i mean maybe that'd be the next step for him is just to learn how to slow the game down and back off a little bit and get himself back in the zone uh faster you know make the adjustment faster and people that get impatient with these guys you got to remember there's something to the the whole thing with long-limbed guys that might take a little longer look at randy johnson man in montreal and even in seattle before he put it together, people thought, what a waste. I mean, there's been a lot of guys that it took a while to put it together. So you look at a guy like Sabatka, you know, who came up last year and was just filthy initially or two years ago. And, and then he battles the command problems for a while. I think it's different for guys who six seven, you know, six six, six seven, you know, and six ten like Randy Johnson. It's not as easy maybe to put it together as it is for a more normal sized guy. Right. And Randy Johnson ran pretty hot too. You know, it's, he was, he was pretty angry out there on the mound a uh-huh. lot. Um, it, it, for me, throwing strikes is a mental thing. Uh, a lot of times guys don't throw strikes. I, I always thought of overthrowing as being scared, you know, not, not trusting yourself, not, not believing that your stuff's good enough the way it is. And a lot of guys, they get in jams or they get overwhelmed by a situation. They try to do more and you really got to just back off and learn how to stay calm, but it's all just taming your own mind. And if he can handle that, you know, because if you watch a guy's bullpen and he can't throw strikes, then you know it's then you know it's probably mechanical and not mental. But a lot of guys are lights out in the bullpen and don't throw a ball. Then they get in the game, things just speed up and they can't throw strikes. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of diagnose, you know, what's causing you to have these control problems. But for me, throwing strikes was was never really that hard. It was just about taming my brain and and getting myself into the zone and and being confident and trusting the stuff you're throwing. And you hear it all the time, but it it really is. Throwing strikes is just a mental battle. Good stuff. All right, man. That's it for us. Uh, We will have another show. We're going to go to two a week starting next week. So you're going to get your fill then of us. So I hope you like it. And I hope you enjoyed uh, Mark Simon's visit with us. Thanks again to Mark Simon today. That was great stuff. And I have a better understanding now of defensive metrics, even though anything that says Antleton Simmons is not the best defensive shortstop in the game is seriously off to me. (laughs) That's a tough sell. That's a tough sell, but he, he did make a lot of sense, you know, and I was glad to hear that there's a lot of people watching the games and it's not just some formula. they're Exactly. That was good stuff. Yeah, Yeah. Hearing about how they're doing it. Yeah. All right, that's cool. Hey, thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you guys later. 755 is real. We're out of here. See you next week.